Hello, welcome to Notable Nobels, a podcast about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Dr. Harrison Doolin. That's right, y'all. I finished my PhD. So now I'm looking for a job, but I will still be your host for this web series going forward. Now, the purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, and we're using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. Now, every career has its highest prize, and for scientists, that prize is the Nobel Prize. It's the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of biology and our ability to treat diseases. Today we will be examining the 1989 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to J. Michael Bishop and Harold Varmus. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute chose to give Bishop and Varmus the award, quote, for their discovery of the cellular origin of retroviral oncogenes, unquote. We will be going over how scientists pinpointed a gene called SARC in Rouse sarcoma virus that caused cancer, how Bishop and Varmus discovered the cellular origin of that gene, and how the discovery of that gene led to a fundamental shift in our understanding of the essence of cancer. But first, a little bit of background on Bishop and Varmus. Michael Bishop was born in February 1936 in New York, Pennsylvania. He didn't have a family connection to medicine growing up, but in high school he became friends with his family's physician and was inspired to go to medical school. He went to Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania and majored in chemistry. He then went to Harvard Medical School to earn his MD, which he finished in 1962. However, his desires had shifted away from medical practice towards medical research, which he was exposed to during his time as a medical student. However, though he wanted to make the shift from medical practice to medical research, he lacked the necessary credentials to become an academic. So he begrudgingly entered a medical residency program at Massachusetts General Hospital. His residency did nothing to change his feelings towards being a clinician. He writes in his autobiography that he celebrated his final day of residency by chucking his pager against the hospital wall. But he was about to get his chance to become a full-time scientist. After completing residency, he accepted a postdoctoral position in the Research Associate Training Program at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, a program specifically designed to help train medical doctors in basic scientific research. His postdoctoral work was on the replication of polioviruses, and virology continued to be his main discipline even when his focus later shifted to cancer. Following the completion of his postdoctoral studies, he was offered a faculty position at the University of California, San Francisco, which he accepted in 1968 and where he has remained to this day. Shortly after his arrival, two things happened that would set the course for his career. The first was that he was introduced to the Rouse sarcoma virus by a neighboring lab. The second was that Harold Varmus knocked on Bishop's door one day to ask for a job. Harold Varmus, Bishop's co-recipient of the Nobel Prize, was born in Oceanside, New York in December of 1939. His father was a graduate of Tufts Medical School in Boston who had a family practice on Long Island. Harold Varmus, however, had no real interest in science or medicine as a high schooler, though he felt that a career in medicine would be a natural path to follow. He had a broad range of interests and wasn't sure what career path he wanted, so he chose to study at Amherst College after high school, saying, quote, I sought a place where I would be certain to get a broad introduction to both arts and sciences, unquote. 
he ended up majoring in English literature, though he also was on a pre-med track. He stayed pre-med for undergrad even after one of the faculty members advised him to drop his medical school ambitions because of his C in organic chemistry. Nevertheless, he was still unsure about his career path after graduating from Amherst. He was torn between continuing his study of English literature or applying to medical school. He ended up applying to both. He applied to Harvard Medical School and Harvard's PhD program in English literature. His application to medical school was rejected, while he was awarded a fellowship for the English literature graduate program. So that's where he went in the fall of 1961. However, he almost immediately began having doubts about his choice. He befriended several Harvard Medical School students, and through them he increasingly felt a reactivated interest in medicine. He ended up reapplying to medical school at both Harvard and Columbia, and he was once again rejected from Harvard. But he was accepted to Columbia, so he dropped out of Harvard to enter medical training in the fall of 1962. He was planning on going into medical practice after graduation, but America's involvement in the Vietnam War would change his path yet again. Medical students were subject to the draft, but they could defer their military service for work in one of the agencies of the public health service, such as the CDC or the NIH. Farmus was determined not to participate in the war, so he sought a research position at the NIH, which he obtained in 1968. Although he didn't have a strong background in laboratory work, he learned quickly and was soon a competent scientist. During his time at the NIH, Varmus was exposed to many excellent scientists, working on viruses and cancer, and he became intrigued by the cancer-causing viruses. He therefore sought out a position where he could study these interesting pathogens, so he reached out to Michael Bishop at UCSF. Bishop and Varmus hit it off instantly, and in the summer of 1970, Bishop moved to UCSF, and Bishop and Varmus began their work on Rouse sarcoma virus and cancer. So what was known about cancer and cancer-causing viruses before Bishop and Varmus began their work? Well, the cancer field was divided. Scientists couldn't agree about what exactly caused cancer. Three areas of investigation had shown promise. First, scientists were aware that viruses could cause cancer. As discussed on the last episode of this podcast, the discovery of the Rouse sarcoma virus generated a great deal of interest in oncoviruses, viruses that cause cancer. However, after decades of searching, few oncoviruses had been isolated, and it was clear not all cancers could be explained by oncoviruses. Additionally, how oncoviruses like the Rouse sarcoma virus induced normal cells to become cancer cells was a mystery. A second line of investigation had shown a link between harmful inanimate substances and cancer. Tobacco smoke, coal tar, and radiation had all been linked to cancer. Many labs were able to produce animal models of cancer by treating the animals with carcinogens. But how the carcinogens turned normal cells to cancer cells was a mystery. A third line of inquiry proposed that cancer was a genetic disease. Some families had much higher than expected rates of certain types of cancer, which implied that cancer might be a hereditary disease. But plenty of people with no family history of cancer can still get cancer. How all these different observations fit together was a puzzle for many years. Then slowly, evidence began accumulating that genes, particularly mutations in genes, played an essential role in cancer. Radiation had been flagged as a cause of cancer, but in 1926, 
researchers demonstrated that radiation also caused genetic mutations in model organisms like yeast and flies. Then in 1960, Dr. Bruce Ames at UC Berkeley demonstrated that chemicals known to cause cancer in animals also caused mutations in bacteria, thus linking carcinogens with mutagens. Then in 1970, a discovery was made in Rouse sarcoma virus that piqued the interest of Mike Bishop and Harold Varmus. The discovery was made by Steve Martin, not the Hollywood actor, but a researcher over at UC Berkeley. Martin had treated the Rouse sarcoma virus with a chemical to mutate the virus genes. One of the mutant viruses that he isolated was unable to induce lab-grown chicken cells to form tumors. Interestingly, the viruses could still replicate just fine in the chicken cells, but the viruses had lost their ability to turn the cells cancerous. Whatever gene had been mutated, that gene was what was causing the chicken cells to become cancerous after they were infected with the Rouse sarcoma virus. Martin called the gene that had been mutated VSARC, spelled SRC, which was short for viral sarcoma. This gene greatly interested Bishop and Varmus. Here's how Bishop described his reaction to the discovery of VSARC. Quote, there had been hints before that the elemental secrets of cancer might lie hidden in the genetic dowry of cells. But here in Rouse sarcoma virus was an explicit example of a gene that can switch a cell from normal to cancerous growth and keep it there. Now, more ambitious questions arose. Might the cell itself have such genes? Might all cancers arise from the wayward actions of genes? Can the complexities of human cancer be reduced to the chemical vocabulary of DNA? Harold Varmus and I began to pursue these questions not long after he joined me in San Francisco in 1970." Unquote. So how exactly did Bishop and Varmus go about looking for cancer-causing genes in cells? Well, they started with chicken cells, Rouse sarcoma virus, and the viral gene VSARC. Bishop and Varmus were intrigued by the fact that VSARC was not necessary for viral replication in chicken cells. The fact that VSARC was dispensable for replication led them to hypothesize that maybe VSARC wasn't originally a viral gene. They guessed that SARC was actually a cellular gene that had ended up incorporated into the Rouse sarcoma virus genome. If this was true, then that meant a cellular version of the SARC cancer gene, which the pair called C-SARC, was still present somewhere in the DNA of normal chicken cells. Bishop and Varmus decided to go hunting for SARC in the chicken genome. This was a tricky task. Most cells have tens of thousands of genes, so they would need a tool that could specifically recognize the C-SARC gene and ignore the other genes. Also, this was the 1970s. Modern tools like DNA sequencing and PCR weren't around yet. However, they were able to use the genome of Rouse sarcoma virus to create a radioactive DNA probe that matched the SARC gene. Now, DNA is an amazing molecule. Inside cells, DNA exists as two complementary strands made up of molecules called nucleotides, and each strand binds specifically to the other strand. The specificity of DNA is determined by the DNA's sequence, and the sequence is determined by the arrangement of the nucleotides. DNA molecules with high sequence similarity will bind to each other, while sequences with low similarity won't bind to each other. Pharmacists took their radioactive DNA probe specific for SARC 
and added it to DNA extracted from a sample of normal, non-cancerous chicken cells. If SARC really was present in the cells, then their probe would bind to the cellular DNA and they would detect a radioactive signal. If SARC was not a cellular gene, then the probe would not bind and they would not detect a radioactive signal. So what did they see when they ran their experiment? They saw that their probe bound the cellular DNA. They had found evidence that a gene known to cause cancer was already present in the chicken cells. That's pretty amazing. But if SARC was present in normal cells, why weren't normal cells constantly turning into cancer cells? Well, Bishop and Varmus also noticed that their probe bound to the viral SARC DNA better than the cellular SARC DNA. This implied that the viral SARC contained mutations that made it different from cellular SARC. And Bishop and Varmus made the bold proposal that these mutations were responsible for turning SARC from a normal cellular gene into a cancer-causing gene. Now, all of that is pretty extraordinary, but Bishop and Varmus didn't stop there. They also wanted to see if the SARC gene was present not just in chicken cells, but possibly other organisms as well. They started by looking for SARC in other bird species. They found it in ducks, and in turkey, in quail, and even an emu that they got from the Sacramento Zoo. An expanded search showed that SARC was not just in birds, but also in mammals, including mice, dogs, and in human cells. The discovery of SARC was big news to the scientific community as its existence implied that cancer, at its heart, was a genetic disease. But SARC was just one gene. Some people asked if SARC might be an archetype for other cancer-causing genes hidden in the cell. Such cancer-causing genes were dubbed oncogenes. And when scientists began looking for these genes, they quickly began finding them. By studying other oncoviruses, dozens of oncogenes were identified. The cellular versions of these oncogenes were also isolated, and the viral versions all contained mutations that distinguished them from their cellular counterparts. This was all very exciting, but one key piece of evidence was missing to fully validate Bishop and Varmus's genetic theory of carcinogenesis. The pair had predicted that cancer arose via mutations in normal genes. These mutations would turn the normal gene, called a proto-oncogene, into a cancer-causing oncogene. All the work so far had shown that viral oncogenes were mutant versions of cellular genes, but nobody had yet isolated a mutant oncogene from a deliberately induced human cancer cell. Dr. Robert Weinberg, working at MIT in Boston, set out to get that evidence in 1979. Weinberg took normal human cells and treated them with a chemical carcinogen, turning them into cancer cells. Weinberg then extracted the DNA from the cancer cells and chopped up the DNA. He then added the DNA to normal cells so that each cell got roughly one gene each from the cancer cells. The result was that a small fraction of the normal cells turned into cancerous cells. His team was able to identify an oncogene called RAS that was mutated in the cancer cells and could turn normal cells cancerous. Thus, the link between mutating a specific human gene and carcinogenesis was finally sealed. But there was one more discovery that was crucial in understanding the genetic origins of cancer. The proto-oncogenes that had been discovered were numerous and highly exciting, but they weren't the full picture. 
it was appreciated that the presence of oncogenes could turn a cell cancerous, but in some cases, it was the absence of a gene that produced the cancer. In the 1960s, Dr. Henry Harris at Oxford University, UK, had pioneered a technique for fusing cells together. Harris found that fusing a normal cell and a cancer cell sometimes resulted in the suppression of the cancer. Harris hypothesized that the cancer cell might be deficient in this tumor suppressor gene, which was then supplied by the normal cell when the cells were fused together. Harris lacked the tools to identify a specific tumor suppressor gene, but in 1986, the first specific tumor suppressor gene, called RB, was identified. RB is short for retinoblastoma, a type of cancer with high heritability. People with the inherited form of retinoblastoma have a deletion in their DNA that results in the loss of the RB gene. The loss of RB puts these people at very high risk of developing cancer at some point in their lives. Since the discovery of RB, many other tumor suppressor genes have also been identified. The culmination of the work of the scientists mentioned so far, as well as many others, produced the modern understanding of cancer as a genetic disease. By that, we aren't saying that cancer is necessarily an inherited disease, though it can be. Rather, we are saying that cancer is a disease that affects the genetic material of the cell, the DNA. Here's how Bishop summarized the findings. Quote, The genetic paradigm has provided a powerful view of cancer. The seemingly countless causes of cancer, tobacco, sunlight, asbestos, chemicals, viruses, and many others, may all work in a single way, by playing on a genetic keyboard, by damaging a few of the genes in our DNA. Unquote. We can group these damaged genes into one of two categories, proto-oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes. Our cells have several hundred of these genes. Under normal circumstances, they play important roles in cell function, and most of them govern processes related to cellular division, replication, differentiation, or regulated cell death. However, when these genes are mutated, they can send the cell down a path of unregulated cell division producing cancer. Cancer biologists often use the analogy of a car when explaining these genes to people. Think of a cell as a car. A car has a gas pedal to accelerate the car and a brake pedal to make the car stop. If both pedals are working fine, the car will drive normally. But if someone places a brick on the gas pedal, the car will continue to accelerate and spin out of control. Similarly, if someone cuts the brakes, the car will lose the ability to stop and will also spin out of control. Mutations in the proto-oncogenes are like someone placing a brick on the gas pedal. Mutant versions of these genes can force the cell to proliferate beyond what would normally be needed. Mutations in the tumor suppressor genes are like someone cutting the car's brakes. Mutations in these genes can keep a cell proliferating even though it's receiving signals to stop. It is now appreciated that most cancer cells have a combination of mutant proto-oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. In fact, most cells need mutations in multiple genes before becoming cancerous. The accumulation of these mutations over a lifetime is why cancer is usually found in older adults. This means that the progress of a cell from a normal cell to a cancerous cell is often slow. But once enough mutations have accumulated, a normal cell that only divides when it's supposed to will spin out of control on a path of uncontrolled cell division.
Now, for their contribution to the understanding of cancer as a genetic disease, and for their identification of SARC as the first proto-oncogene, it is not surprising that in 1989, Bishop and Varmus were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. They had progressed our understanding of cancer by leaps and bounds. But there were very practical questions that remained with the two Nobel laureates. Varmus put it this way, quote, The scientific community learned a great deal about proto-oncogenes in the decade following the discovery of the CSARC gene. The next questions were obvious, but more difficult to answer. Is this information useful to patients as well as exciting to scientists? Can doctors use this knowledge to diagnose, classify, monitor, or more importantly, treat or prevent human cancers? Unquote. At first, it certainly didn't look like a genetic understanding of cancer had done much practical good. When Bishop and Varmus arrived in Sweden to accept the Nobel Prize in 1989, there were no cancer therapies that targeted an oncogene, and there were no genetic screens in clinics to detect mutant oncogenes. What was more, between 1970 and 1990, the cancer death rate had continued to rise in the United States and was higher than in any year on record. Bishop and Varmus knew that the clinical advances they were hoping for had not arrived yet, but they were optimistic, and they knew the knowledge that had been gained so far was valuable. Varmus summed things up nicely in the conclusion of his acceptance speech. Harkening back to his days as a student of English literature, he reflected on the epic English poem Beowulf and said the following, quote, We recognize that, unlike Beowulf in the Hall of Hrothgar, we have not slain our enemy, the cancer cell. In our adventures, we have only seen our monster more clearly and described his scales and fangs in new ways, ways that reveal a cancer cell to be, like Grendel, a distorted version of our normal selves." Unquote. I really like this quote because it both nicely sums up the knowledge that had been gained and the problems that remained in cancer research. For those of you unfamiliar with Beowulf, Grendel is a monster who goes around eating King Hrothgar's men, but he is also said to be a descendant of Cain, the son of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. This creature that devours men is descended from man, and that is exactly the case of the cancer cell. Cancer cells are normal cells that have become distorted and monstrous to the point where they start killing their normal counterparts. Even if you are not familiar with Beowulf, a quick look at the monsters in most of our stories reveals a similar pattern. Our most memorable monsters, vampires, zombies, werewolves, Mr. Hyde, the Titans from Attack on Titan, are all monstrous precisely because of their resemblance to ourselves. But monsters that look like us also have the advantage of blending in. This creates one of the main problems in cancer therapy, how to design a treatment that can specifically target the cancer cells while leaving the other cells alone. For a cancer drug to successfully target the protein made from an oncogene, it must leave the normal protein alone because cells need that normal protein. Finding such a drug that can make that distinction is a major challenge in cancer research to this day. Additionally, because cancer cells can have many mutations, there is no guarantee that targeting a particular oncogene may be enough when multiple oncogenes are driving the cancer. However, there have been some preliminary advances. One of the biggest came in 1999 with a drug called Gleevec. 
Gleevec is used to treat chronic myeloid leukemia, CML, a type of blood cancer. It works by specifically inhibiting an oncogene called CABL. It was developed by a company now under the pharmaceutical giant Novartis. The scientists at this company were looking into drugs that could block enzymes similar to the protein made by the ABL gene, and they eventually found a drug that worked in cell culture and could also eliminate CML in mice. The company then ran a clinical trial with CML patients to test the drug. Now, lots of cancer drugs make it to this stage of development, and most only show a slight decrease in cancer cells, or maybe they slightly increase the life of the patient, or maybe they only work for a small handful of people in the trial. But with Gleevec, 100% of the patients in the trial went into rapid remission. This was an amazing result, and it took the cancer world by storm. In the years following the release of Gleevec, the survival rate from CML tripled to nearly 90%. This was proof of principle that a drug could be developed that could specifically target an oncogene while leaving normal cells alone. Now the search for drugs like Gleevec continues, some of which have been successful but none of which have been as dramatic. A promising recent drug called Lumacras, developed by the pharmaceutical company Amgen, was approved just last year by the US FDA. The drug targets the oncogene KRAS, which is mutated in a high percentage of lung cancers. It's too early to say the impact this drug will have, but it's one that people are keeping an eye on. Now, while effective therapies that can specifically target oncogenes remain uncommon, the advancements in gene sequencing over the last two decades have made screening for mutant cancer genes extremely affordable and commonplace. Oncologists now have detailed knowledge of the mutations that led to their patients' cancers, and this knowledge can help them determine which drugs might be more effective in fighting the cancer. Additionally, multiple companies now offer genetic screening for inherited mutations in known proto-oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. People should consult a genetic counselor about the testing, but generally it's a good idea to get tested if you have a family history of cancer. The testing can reveal if you are at an elevated risk for certain types of cancer, and high-risk individuals can then consult their medical provider about any preventative steps that might be necessary. Finally, I want to point out that we have a very long way to go with cancer. Cancer remains the second highest cause of death in the United States. While cancer death rates have been steadily declining for years, it remains a major killer. 2022 will see an estimated 2 million new cancer cases in the United States, at least 25% of which will be fatal. We can and we should do what we can to reduce the risk of cancer, but since cancer is a disease of our own bodies, it will likely be around as long as we're around. While we may not be able to get rid of the monster completely, it's the hope of the scientific community that eventually we'll be able to put the monster in its cage clip its claws, muzzle its fangs, and keep it from being a threat to us. So that concludes this episode of Notable Nobels. If you want to know more about cancer and the 1989 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, I recommend reading Bishop's autobiography, How to Win the Nobel Prize, Varmus's autobiography, The Art and Politics of Science, or Siddhartha Mutherjee's book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. Next time, we will continue looking at viruses, and we'll be returning once again to the Rouse sarcoma virus. After Rouse's discovery of a virus that caused cancer in chickens, a lingering question remained. 
This virus could introduce its cancer-causing genes into the cell, and those genes were able to permanently alter the infected cell, turning it and all of its daughter cells into cancer cells. The cancer-causing virus genes were somehow getting passed down to all the new progeny cancer cells. How was this virus able to maintain its genome in all the progeny cells? Well, listen next time to find out. Thanks so much for listening. See you then.